Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. I am so excited. I have flirted with the idea for a long time of having a podcast that mirrors the work of Sacred Nine Project. What is the work of Sacred Nine Project? Sacred Nine Project strives to be pioneers in the curation, creation, and circulation of renewed American music. This almost always refers to a reimagining of vocal music, roughly 18th century, 19th century, that was written by Americans or that has enjoyed a significant tradition in the United States. Less frequently, it can denote completely new music and verse that confront troubling aspects of our history. Through strong musical performance and research, renewed American music can refresh or revisit earlier compositions, indict problematic worldviews, unearth almost forgotten genres, wield textual themes as present-day parables, or foster introspection, healing, and action. I have no idea how this podcast will be received, but if passion and authenticity count for anything, I think this podcast might be worth your time. Maybe there are enough American music history nerds out there to come and play. But not just that. We overlap with general American history, sociology, anthropology, and gender studies. Still, let me know how you think I can improve. The title of the inaugural Sacred Nine concert in 2018, and consequently the title of these first three episodes is Regret, Repent, Rejoice, because of the pervasive religious trends in the text of Southern Harmony, details that are arguably still paramount to evangelicals today. Regret, humankind is inherently flawed. Repent, these flawed humans need salvation. Rejoice, all is well because a saved person's destination is heaven. And yes, it is now going to be three episodes. Why? Because my guests are stellar and are so generous with their wisdom. This episode will include some archaic and offensive language originating from conversations about our nation's history. When I set out to find guests for these episodes, I looked back at my work cited linked in the show notes for our inaugural concert and chose four of them who had written fairly recently on the topic. In addition, I sought out two other experts who I had since learned are intimately involved with shape note singing. I thought, if just two of these six people agree, I'll be all set. Well, all six of them said yes. As a result, I have upwards of seven hours of interviews, and I've had the unenviable task of deciding what to leave out, since all of it was pure gold. I'd like them to introduce themselves to you here, after which I'll refer to them by their last names for continuity's sake. I'm Erin Fulton. I am a PhD candidate in musicology at University of Kentucky. I work as the music bibliographer for the Sounding Spirit Research Lab at Emory Center for Digital Scholarship, and I direct the Big Singing uh, project for the Nunn Center for Oral History. I'm Jesse P. Carlsberg. I'm the director, editor-in-chief of the Sounding Spirit Collaborative. I'm a sacred harp singer and composer and teacher and songbook editor. And I, I work at Emory University at the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship, where I am senior digital scholarship strategist, and I also teach in our music department. My name is Stephen Marini. I'm the Elizabeth Luce Moore Professor of Christian Studies at Wellesley College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. My name is Kay Norton. I'm Professor of Musicology at the School of Music, Dance, and Theater, Arizona State University. My name is Andrew Stern. I am an Associate Professor of Religious Studies and the Program Coordinator for Religious Studies at North Carolina Wesleyan University in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. My name is David Stowe. I'm Professor of Religious Studies at Michigan State University. Recordings from Sacred Harp Singings are courtesy of Nathan Reese, as well as the Alan Lomax Collection. 
The first link in the show notes is a beautiful webpage I've created where all of the announcements from my guests and contributors are displayed in an organized and pleasing format. I did not put their information in the show notes. There was so much to share that the show notes looked very messy and uninviting. So please visit sacred9.com slash podguestnews. That's sacred9.com slash podguestnews. And look for episodes one, two, and three. I promise it's worth the click. Of course, my greatest interest are the unique texts and tunes, but since Southern Harmony was the source for the original Sacred Night concert, it's only fitting that equal time is given to the conditions that brought this tune book about, as well as the Fasola culture that still thrives today. In the trailer, I announced that I'd be starting with the information about tune books and its musical features, and then I'd move toward the more problematic hymns. By the way, when I say hymn, it's synonymous with text or lyrics. If I'm talking about music, I'll always use the word tune. In any case, after having spoken with these six scholars, it just makes the most sense to tackle the texts first, then the tune book and its musical quirks, then the fossola culture, as that places things in kind of a chronological order. Southern Harmony saw many new tunes written, even by the compiler William Walker himself. However, from what I have learned, most of the hymns were already in existence, many of English origin. Many were curated from earlier hymnals of the time, and, according to Walker's preface, the tunes in our collection were aimed at serving as a kind of companion to words-only hymnals at that time. The full title is The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, after all. Indeed, the title page says, well adapted to Christian churches of every denomination, singing schools, and private societies. Therefore, since Southern Harmony and similar tune books were not hymnals per se, they arguably were in a de facto sense. Walker's distinction of every denomination is key. Southern Harmony was a huge seller. In its day, you could buy it at the general store along with your feed and fabric. As such, while the tune book is full of religious tenets, it wasn't denomination-specific, as Fulton reminds us. Tune books have never been, with, with very rare exceptions, doctrinally marked. It's quite unlike hymnals, which are oftentimes either produced officially by a denomination or given some stamp of approval, even if that's at the individual congregational level of saying, okay, we're going to buy a hundred of these, so we probably agree with everything that's inside of it. Tune books have to be, from a commercial perspective, kind of generic. The texts are serving as examples to show you where to put the syllables, and you don't want to put anything that's too controversial. Hymns that touch my soul alway. There are few things I am more passionate about than hymns, particularly from this time, meaning early 1800s and earlier. Of course, there are levels of quality in any body of work. However, at the opening of this episode, I want to consider what I feel are top-tier texts from this time period. Blunt, confrontational, no-nonsense, lean, economical, while still being poetically filthy rich. Let me give you some examples, all of which are from Southern Harmony. Come Ye Sinners Poor and Wretched was written by Joseph Hart in 1759. Come ye sinners poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity joined with power. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and mangled by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Talk about putting the ball in the sinner's court. That's genius. How can we skip Dr. Watts? Isaac Watts, that is. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. 
and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Was it for crimes that I have done, he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. A hymn I've recently discovered in Southern Harmony is paired with the tune Basra, that's B-O-Z-R-A-H. The hymn is written by Joshua Spaulding, who died in 1825. Who is this that comes from far with his garments dipped in blood? Strong, triumphant traveler, is he man or is he God? But then when you place those words in the capable hands of the kinds of southern-sounding melodies like we will discuss in episode two, the effect, in my opinion, is devastatingly visceral. I'll sing it for you. Who is this that comes from far with his garments dipped in blood? Strong, triumphant traveler, is he man or is he God? I that reign in righteousness, son of God and man I am, mighty to redeem your race, Jesus is your Savior's I'm going to get ahead of myself here, as this will be discussed at length in episode 3, but Marini affirms the power of these texts when offering one reason why non-evangelicals are so captivated by shape note selections. Something about those classic 18th century, direct, powerful, biblical, emotional, that combination grabs them in a way that nothing else in their religious culture does. Hymns that travel on their way. Hymnody evolves, just as this era's textual gravitas was giving way to arguably lighter and more sentimental sacred verse of authors such as Fanny Crosby and Will L. Thompson, our old delectably cantankerous texts began to be sanitized. For example, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Wretched is now Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy. Actually, you can find that altered word even early in the 1800s. Another is Rock of Ages, written by Augustus Toplady in 1776. In the last verse, most hymnals say, While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, or when my eyelids close in death. But do you know the original, as far as I can tell, was when my eye strings break in death. Yuck! The world got too squeamish for many of these hymns. Another way these hymns have been changed over the centuries is how they have been snipped, clipped, and quilted back together. For example, a hymn we've been talking about, Come Ye Sinners, can yield two examples of this. In older hymnals, each verse has a two-line extension. This verse carries my favorite extension. Ho ye needy, come and welcome, God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings us nigh. And here's the extension. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Also, the refrain that is often associated with this hymn is often tagged onto other hymns like Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The refrain is, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me with his arms. 
In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Here is the United Sacred Heart Music Association in 2016 singing a Fasola verse and two other verses of Come Thou Fount to the tune Restoration with the refrain I just talked about. Don't worry, we'll unpack this mode of singing in the next two episodes. Yet another facet of the evolution of hymnody is the elimination of verses or the increasingly fewer verses in more modern times. It surprises some that many hymns have a lot more verses than survive in more contemporary hymnals. Much before the time of Southern Harmony, most hymnals were words only. Brackets appear around some of the verses indicating, if I understand it correctly, that those verses could be left out. Therefore, the original hymnists or editors were already perhaps unwittingly paving the way for verses to fall out of use. I just arranged Watts' Come We That Love the Lord, a.k.a. We're Marching to Zion, a.k.a. as originally known, Heavenly Joy on Earth. The original has ten verses and I arranged all ten. Glutton for punishment. Here again is the United Sacred Heart Musical Association singing All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name to the tune Coronation.
I found a version of All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name that has nine verses, and in each, Perinet or Perine has to rhyme with the syllable all. Listen. All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let high-born seraphs tune the lyre, and as they tune it, fall before his face who tunes their choir, and crown him Lord of all. Crown him, ye morning stars of light, who fixed this floating ball. Now hail the strength of Israel's might, and crown him Lord of all. Crown him, ye martyrs of our God, who from this altar call. Extol the stem of Jesse's rod, and crown him Lord of all. Ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransomed from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace, and crown him Lord of all. Hail him, ye heirs of David's line, whom David Lord did call. The God incarnate, man divine, and crown him Lord of all. Sinners whose love can ne'er forget the wormwood and the gall. Go spread your trophies at his feet and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. And my favorite, oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Hymns that keep some folks at bay. If only we could just leave it there. But leaving things be is not the objective of Sacred Nine Project, nor is the objective to try to be controversial for the sake of it. Sacred Nine was born when I stumbled upon troublesome texts in Southern Harmony, making me reevaluate my role in this country by way of my forebears, who would have been the writers of these texts. It's about the twist ending of realizing that so often our ancestor's story is actually our own. Stowe believes it's necessary to confront this. I'm someone who's always believed in uh, the value of historicizing the past, historicism, and needing to be aware of the documents and texts and history to understand how we've arrived in the moment we're in, why we face these kind of deep divisions. Don't cancel parts of the, the past that we now find unacceptable. Norton agrees about not burying this history. She, avoiding making excuses for the ignorance of the past, has done a great deal of research on slavery in her home state, rebuking the idea that, well, everyone was doing it, and finding white people who acknowledged how horrible slavery was at the time. Incidentally, I've been thinking about what kind of project I might do for Stephen Foster's 200th birthday in 2026. I hope part of the presentation will demonstrate that, even though minstrelsy was ubiquitous, even though according to the website of the James Madison Museum in Orange County, the great emancipator, President Lincoln himself, hosted minstrel performances in the White House. There must have been scores of people decrying it. But before we start judging history with our perfect vision, Stern shares his rather systematic approach to assessing the past. The first thing I, I think we're trying to do when we, when we look back at these sources is we're trying to just let the dead speak, step beyond ourselves and see the world as they would have seen it. Questions of tolerance, uh, excusing the past, condemning the past, I, I don't think those things even enter yet. Second, though, I mean, assuming that we, we believe in objective universal moral truths, there does come a point then when we have to render moral judgments. Even when we do sort of shift to a sort of 
moral evaluation of the past, which sometimes, frankly, has to involve condemnation, you know, we, we still want to be very careful to do it as fairly and objectively as possible. And I think even here, ideally, we ought to use historical reflection sort of as a, as a means to examine our own consciences and, and our own societies. So you know, rather than saying, okay, we're the enlightened ones, they weren't, to say, okay, well, you know, these things happened in the past that were, that were clearly wrong by any objective moral standard, but, but what does this tell us about ourselves? And what does this perhaps point out in our own society that needs improvement? Finally, I mean, something I, I think we always need to keep in mind is just recognizing the, the complexity of human beings. The vast majority of people are neither saints nor villains. And actually, even people who are saints or villains are not unambiguously so, right? I mean, everyone has this sort of complexity within them. I think when we're studying the past, there's always got to be this degree of humility. We are flawed as people in the past were flawed. So I, I think sort of humility needs to undergird the whole historical process. Appeals to youth to maintain chastity were commonplace, coming from the premise that young people were inherently wicked, and I believe these texts are antecedents to today's purity gospel. I don't know the author of this one, but it's so delicious that I will read two verses. Say now, ye lovely social band who walk the way to Canaan's land, ye who have fled from Sodom's plain, say, will you now return again? Have you just ventured to the field, well armed with helmet, sword, and shield? And shall the world with dread alarms compel you now to ground your arms? Beware of pleasure's siren song. Alas, it cannot soothe you long. It cannot quiet Jordan's wave, nor cheer the dark and silent grave. Oh, let your thoughts delight to soar where earth and time shall be no more. Explore by faith the heavenly fields and pluck the fruit that Canaan yields. By the way, the word Jordan would have been pronounced as Jordan in both the white and black traditions. I don't know who wrote this next hymn either, but it's a favorite. Today, if you will hear his voice, now is the time to make your choice. Say, will you to Mount Zion go? Say, will you have this Christ or no? Young women, now we look to you. Are you resolved to perish too? To rush in carnal pleasures on and sink in flaming ruin down? We find this in Liverpool. Death's iron gate you must pass through ere long, my dear young friends. With whom then do you think to go? With saints or fiery fiends? That's chill. <laughs> By the way, that is the very first text in Southern Harmony. There was a Another prejudice that these writers held was against the so-called Whore of Babylon, the Catholic Church. The Romish lady in Southern Harmony, is one of the few selections in the book that would not be classified as a hymn or sacred song. Fulton reminds us that it is a ballad probably from 16th century Britain. It is absurdly anti-Catholic. In Southern Harmony, there are no fewer than 11 verses for the narrative. Girl decides to sever herself from the idolatry of the Catholic Church. Girl's mother rats her out. Pope has her burned at the stake. Stowe has some thoughts about why there was anti-Catholic sentiment. And their cultures were, were very different. I mean, you think about the importance of temperance. The Catholics never stopped loving their, their wine and serving wine and <laughs> communion. And they would dance. They would do these things 
that, you know, good fundamentalists would just reject. I know people who think Catholics are not going to heaven because of the perception that they worship Mary. However, Stern holds that there is an incongruity between sources of this animus in history and the way ordinary Catholics and Protestants would have treated each other. Particularly troubling in these texts is the sentiment toward Native Americans and the enslaved around missions. Fulton tells us a bit about the history. The introduction of missionary texts into hymnals and tune books in the middle 19th century is something that intrigues me because it really does mark the mainstream acceptance of the idea of what we could today call world missions as an important Christian cause. The missionary hymn, as it's called, which is the one that goes to From Greenland's Icy Mountains by Lowell Mason, that's a tune from the mid-20s that was first published in sheet music form but then started getting into social worship songsters in the 20s per se, because it's in Juvenile Liar. And then in tune books, not too long later, I think it's been in Southern Harmony from the first edition. But they really do start to kind of blossom and spread like little mushrooms, sort of around the late 40s, early 1850s. So to me, that's an indication of kind of a tipping point in Christian thought in general, of missions, world missions especially, becoming a major question of concern, and something that the average Christian, as conceived of by the average tune book compiler or publisher, could be assumed to agree with. In An Address for All, the princes high and beggars die and mingle with the dust, the rich, the brave, the negro slave, the wicked and the just. The whole theme of the hymn is that we are all the same in our need for a savior, yet the poet makes a not at all subtle point to divide us all into very specific hierarchical categories. And the slave here is clearly not to be in the company of the rich and the brave. Another example of groups of greater thans and less thans is missionary song. Let the Indian, let the Negro, let the rude barbarian see that divine and glorious conquest once obtained on Calvary. A particularly outrageous example is Indian convert. We hear a Native American's supposed first-person account of salvation. There is a note on this page in Southern Harmony that the hymn was transcribed almost verbatim from the Native American himself. Highly unlikely, since it is in perfect meter and rhyme and in a shockingly stereotypical dialect. Listen. God send he angel, take um care. He come he self and hear um prayer, if Indian heart do pray. He see me now, he know me here. He say, poor Indian, never fear, me wid you night and day. Marini talks about these texts in which a white author is putting words in the mouth of Native Americans. When you get a lyric like the ones you shared, that is trying to express black speech or Native American speech. That's plainly a white lyric that is trying to do that. And the author of that lyric may have thought he or she was doing a good thing by putting a narrative of conversion in the mouth of a Native American. They may have thought they were opening the range of Christian fellowship by so doing. And we need to remember that that may have been 
an intention of this text. Meanwhile, where do we stand with that kind of lyric? Would we sing it today? Would we share it with our fellow citizens today or our co-religionists today? I think the answer to that is no, unless you are sharing it or performing it as a specimen of the legacy of racism and of oppression of racial and and ethnic groups in the country, which is a huge part of how the country got to be what it is. Specimen of the legacy of racism, as Marini has coined it here, will be discussed by other scholars in the third episode in the series. Here is where I start to squirm a little in my seat. If you were to ask a mid-19th century shape note singer about these texts, he or she might ask you, well, what's wrong with that? It's our country's complicated history with missionizing, as Carlsberg refers to it. I think there's a lot of value in looking at sacred music that was connected to missionary work in understanding the kind of cultural dimensions of the colonial project. And people have sincerely held beliefs that at the same time are engines of oppression. So that history is present in some of these texts. But it's the Great Commission. It's the right thing to do. It's the only thing to do. This is not what we might call hate speech used for the purpose of insulting and belittling. But I feel it does welcome that insidious and seductive idea, as Stern mentions, that God loves some of us, and I'm talking about the white European, in a special way. Indeed, it's interesting that the term manifest destiny was coined in the same era as the publications of Southern Harmony and Sacred Harp. Manifest Destiny was about the expansion of the country and expulsion of indigenous people by American settlers supposedly under God's aegis. Extrapolating on that philosophy with missions in mind, we are kind of heirs to the true religion, and it's our job to all the people and cultures of the world who didn't have the good sense that we did to accept Christ much sooner in their history. It sounds like I'm being flipped, but I'm not. Even today when I talk to some evangelicals, I do get the sense that they care about the lost. But I also suspect that they find any non-Christian religious practice utterly ridiculous and that accepting Christ should be an automatic no-brainer. For such people, I'd like to gently point out that it's one thing to witness to a fellow American at the gas pump, because if you live in the United States, you are confronted with Christian ideals since birth, even if you're an atheist. However, it's quite another thing to spread the gospel in locations where there is no Christian heritage. In those places, if we can really get still and be objective, we are asking people to believe in a virgin birth a man who walked on water and turned it into wine, another man who lived in the belly of a whale. To people uninitiated in Christianity, it must sound to them like Athena being born from the brain of Zeus sounds to us. In short, I believe people in my demographic, white and raised evangelical, have to work really hard to keep tempering missionary fervor with empathy. Norton expresses a similar sentiment. People want things the way they used to be. 
nobody used to question missionary activity. Why are we doing it today? And I also think that social segregation or mental social segregation, whether or not your kids actually go to school with the whole Crayola crayon box, but in your heart you think, I just wish it could have been as simple as it was when I was in elementary school. And there was a black high school and there was a white high school. I don't feel that way, but I think there are some people who do. And they didn't have to worry so much about getting it right because they thought it was right, but they didn't actually go hang out with the black kids to find out how they felt. With this mental segregation or social segregation, I think a lot of people have no idea what it must feel like to have your entire indigenous culture decimated by Christian missionaries like in Hawaii. Listen, I do not deny the wonderful work that missionaries have done in the world. I also wonder what would happen if missionaries were only allowed to meet a person's physiological needs of air, food, water, shelter, and clothing, but were not allowed to share the gospel unless someone asked. Or if preaching the gospel is truly the primary objective, why couldn't missionaries in our history have left it at that? Here is Norton again. Being a missionary can be viewed as very heroic. It can be the heroic thing that you're going to do that's going to change the world. Unfortunately, that good-hearted desire had laid on on top so many less attractive things like colonialism. It never stopped just with winning people for Jesus Christ. It also had to do with absorbing natural resources and taking over and establishing a military government. So for me, I really think that missionary activity is one of those things that's been kind of twisted by human ambition and desire. In the nuanced discussion with my guests, I was also reminded of the strange bedfellows that can emerge from issues of religion. Marini talks about how evangelicals and Catholics have been historically aligned about the issue of abortion. However, even though Catholics can be praised for their status as pro-life, doesn't mean they can't still go to hell for their status as idol worshiper. Stern also speaks about a kind of unexpected shift in race and cultural relations involving religion. I think it's really interesting today how that's kind of shifting because today many of the the more um, sort of traditional conservative evangelicals are sort of despairing of, of European Western culture, which is increasingly growing more secular. And so that, that sort of traditional form of Christianity is actually much more prevalent now in the global South. And so you've got like conservative Christians in North America and Europe who are looking to places like Africa and saying, okay, you guys have to save us because you're preserving the true Christianity now. Whereas you have in many cases, uh, progressive Christians in North America and Europe who still have this more paternalistic mentality that, okay, the Africans, Latin Americans, the Asians, you know, these conservative Christians are still unenlightened, right? And we still sort of need to reach out and, and show them the error of their ways. So it's this really bizarre reversal where in some respects now it's the conservatives who have moved away from the Eurocentric mode of thinking and it's ironically, in some cases, the progressives who are still more embedded in that model. 
I have observed this shift in recent discussions about the rift concerning same-sex marriage and the United Methodist denomination where I serve. These stern words we just heard, pardon the pun, serve another purpose, to demonstrate that I am not solely picking on white evangelicals. Progressive Christians are also susceptible to this term I learned recently, ethnocentric. Merriam-Webster defines it as characterized by or based on the attitude that one's own group is superior. I don't think it's controversial to state that the writers of these texts were ethnocentric, and if we can really get honest and fight to keep from going into a defensive posture, I also don't think it's outrageous to claim that many, many Christians are ethnocentric today. I'm not talking about what the official stance of our denominations and individual churches is, but I'm talking about off the record. I'm talking about how we talk about non-Christian cultures in our living rooms with just our spouses present. And that phenomenon is at the heart of Sacred Nine Project. Just because we know what is proper to say or sing in polite company doesn't mean we don't harbor these same prejudices in our hearts. Stern offers another caution, though, about hubris. I always challenge my students to imagine you know, a, a historian looking back from 200 years in the future. What are some of the things we do that are going to be just shocking to people in the future I'm sure there are going to be things that our descendants are going to just shake their heads over and say, how could they have done this? Tell me, friends, what do you say? What implications should this have on our love of the hymns? Does this discussion change how we engage with this body of work? I have made it no secret how much I love these hymns for their melodic beauty and textual depth. This repertoire wounds me and heals me at the same time. My vote is to celebrate and perpetuate this sacred music while using it as an opportunity to inform people about and therefore discontinue some of the toxic sensibilities that gave it life. I'll leave you with Idumia. I think that's how it's pronounced. I'm singing it exactly as written from Southern Harmony, not trying to invoke any particular shape note singing style, as that is not my specialty, though we will be talking about that a lot in the next two episodes. March's episode will be about the singing schools, William Walker, his Southern Harmony, and its musical quirks. The April episode will identify the shape note singing style, the way in which Sacred Harp singing's escaped containment, as Fulton words it, and how practitioners address troublesome hymns. Am I born to die, to lay this body down? And must my trembling spirit fly into a world unknown? The phrase, world unknown, hits me hard. The journey I'm on does not come naturally. Questioning all this is something that my background has taught me to avoid. Still, I'm compelled to do it anyway. But the question I have for you is this. 
Who will come and go with me? With sweet manna all around. If you are in New Orleans on March 19th, please join us for Sacred Nine Project, Beautiful Isle of Somewhere, where you can hear 13 of my own arrangements of gospel hymns and spirituals. Link in the show notes. Do you have an idea for a project or episode? Do you want to host one of our existing projects at your university, institution, or museum? Do you want a custom project built around a topic that you think would resonate with Sacred Nine Project? Do you want to talk about accessing some of my musical arrangements for solo singers or choirs? Do you want to talk further about an episode? Please write to me at sacrednineproject at gmail.com. That's sacred, the numeral nine project at gmail.com. To learn more about us, visit sacrednine.com slash about. Thanks for listening.